hope, resurrection in the face of death. If I can just vent a bit here. The question is, what is right in the sight of God? Which is essential to being a human. Welcome along to another episode of Irreverent with me, Jamie Franklin, and my good friend, Thomas Pelham. Tom, how are you doing today? Very well, thanks. Very well. Um, we're currently overdue for our firstborn, which um, yeah. is kind of frustrating. You, you know all about this, Jamie, because you've literally just come through this whole thing. Uh, yeah, indeed, so indeed. Mary was, uh, was late, wasn't she? So She was 12 a- days late, yeah. And uh, so we're now four days late, oh. uh, which is fine. I mean, you know, Sarah's doing very well, but yeah. uh, it's uh, at the same time kind of one of those things you could happen any day, might might drag on for another week and a half. I really yeah. don't want it to drag on for another week and a half because um, if, the, if the baby came in uh, on the final day we got an induction booked, um, yeah. then uh, we would still be in the first two weeks over Christmas, which would make everything far more complicated. Um, yeah especially taking advantage of our benevolent government's uh, gift of freedom uh, yes. would, would be hard to do. Um, mind yeah. you, we'd be joyful anyway because we'd have a little baby, so I suspect our priorities would be rather different. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it, it, to be honest, oh gosh, my phone just fell on the floor. How unprofessional. Sorry about that, listeners. Uh, to be honest, um, Tom, it, 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 uh, I, I will be praying for you that the baby comes very soon because uh, the longer it goes on, obviously, the, the more sort of... Um, the more challenging it becomes uh, clearly on a number of levels and you know it's best for the baby just to come naturally and 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 yeah, absolutely. Due date. but you know you've also got to remember that in you know in some european countries they don't have a due date they just have a due window and it's you know sometimes i think it's even as much as two weeks so um you know it's an inexact science but obviously um oh, yeah obviously uh, uh i'll keep you in my prayers and i hope all our listeners will as well um, yeah, before I update you about myself, Tom, I thought it'd be good just to open in, in prayer today, if that, if that works for you. And I'll just, I'll just lead us uh, in, a, in an Our Father, or as you might say, Tom, in uh, the Lord's Prayer. So let us... Pater Nostra, yeah, yeah, indeed. So let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, Yeah, so Tom, it's been a a big week for me. It's been a big couple of weeks, actually. Um, So... Just to update you, um, on the church side of things, I'm being uh, ordained priest on Saturday. I was supposed to be ordained priest um, in the summer. Now, for, for our sort of non-Anglican listeners, uh, in, the, in the Church of England, um, on the path to ordain ministry, you're ordained as a deacon, which is a particular order in the church. Uh, first and you it tends to be the case that you're a deacon for a year and then you're ordained priest uh, after that year is over and basically what that means is that you when you when you're when you become a priest you are then 
able to celebrate Holy Communion, which is obviously a, a very significant thing uh, for us as, as Anglicans. Um, there are, there are, I mean, I, I don't want to get sidetracked with a huge discussion about, about priesthood because it obviously is a massive topic, but I think that's, that's, a, that's one of the key distinctives is that um, Tom, as a priest, uh, can celebrate Holy Communion uh, or Eucharist or Mass or whatever you want to call it. And at the moment, I can't, but on Saturday when I'm ordained, then I'll, I'll be able to. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a huge thing. Um, so my ordination is now on, on, on Saturday, so I'll be ordained priest on Saturday. Uh, it's a very stripped back service. We can't have hospitality or anything like that. And there are still all of these restrictions that we have to abide by. So there's a kind of bittersweet sense for me because it's not as I would want it to be. But nevertheless, it's still a, a significant moment for me. And I'd appreciate everyone's prayers uh, if, you could, if you could remember me uh, because it's a, it's a big weekend for me. Um, the other, the other thing that's happened this week is uh, my grandmother uh, passed away. And if I just, I'll just uh, tell, tell you a little bit about it, if that's right, Tom. Um, so I, I, my, my grandmother had a, a very, very serious stroke about 12 years ago. And she has been quite badly disabled since then she uh, you know she could, couldn't walk uh, one of one of her arms she couldn't really use but in terms of her faculties she was she was still all there really she was still the same person very clearly had the same personality um and my grandfather obviously it was a it was a huge it was a huge thing for him and he had to care for her um after that happened so she was able to come home after some time and he was able to care for her um and he's he's been a wonderful example of of service and, and faithfulness in 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 marriage and um just as an aside i think um that's that's such a that it, to me that's a that's a huge inspiration and really epitomizes what what marriage is all about which is about loving service and sacrifice uh, loyalty faithfulness uh, long suffering uh, for for another person for a person that you've you've chosen to commit yourself to in the sight of god and my grandfather's care for my grandmother um is is an amazing has been an amazing thing to 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 watch and and to be inspired by and to to aspire to um on monday i heard that my grandmother had fallen unconscious during the night wasn't really clear what had happened but she'd fallen unconscious and it became it became uh, quite it became clear quite quickly that this was this was the end she was in a, a very fragile state and um and you know anything anything could have could have killed her really for for many years she was she was so she was so fragile but she did she was very robust and you know to survive 12 years after that enormous stroke was was an incredible thing but anyway on on monday i found out that she'd fallen unconscious and so I made the decision to drive to London to try and be with her or my relatives as, as she died. Um, and I, I'm not, I, by the way, Tom, I'm not going to say the name of the hospital or anything like that, because I, I don't want to sort of, I don't, I don't want to sort of implicate anyone um, because clearly um, we were still in the lockdown on Monday um, and that that's part of why I'm telling the story at this detail, because I think there's I think there's a real relevance here to the to the subject matter of this podcast. 
so anyway, I traveled down to London uh, to the hospital and uh, it was, it was uh, about six o'clock when I, six o'clock in the evening when I arrived there and several of my relatives were there, my two brothers, uh, my uh, grandmother's uh, daughter, who I suppose is my half auntie. It's a little bit complicated, but my, my grandmother isn't actually my biological grandmother, although my, she's been my grandmother all my life, if you see what I mean. My biological grandmother died before I was born. And, you know, she is, she is my grandmother for all intents and purposes. So my auntie was there, my brothers were there, um, and, and then there were a few other people. Um, one of uh, my aunties, uh, uh, sorry, her husband was there as well. Anyway, um, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a very sad and, and solemn moment um, to be there over those few hours. My grandmother died, I think it was eventually at about 11 o'clock in the evening. Um, she had been a very strong Christian all her life, as, as uh, my grandfather has been as well. And it was, it, was, it was deeply moving and really a great privilege to be in her presence as she died. It was quite astonishing, actually, Tom, I have to say, because being at the hospital really brought home to me some of the challenges that doctors and nurses and security guards face um, because it must be a terrible thing for anyone with any kind of human sensibility to be instructed to keep relatives apart as they're dying and as they're suffering. Now the the policy in this hospital, I don't know whether it was it's nationwide, but the policy in this hospital um, was to have that you could only have one person present with a patient who is dying. If a patient is not dying, they're not allowed any visitors at all. And you, uh, you could also be present if somebody's giving birth, but it's strictly one person. Uh, but it, it's, it's, I'm sure anyone else who's visited a hospital during this, this time has had the same experience, which is really that there's so much going on in a hospital that you can't really sort of easily restrict people's movements, if you see what I mean. So um, there were, I think, probably about seven of us there uh, with my with my grandmother, and we were all sort of going in and out um, in at uh, various times um, on the ward itself. Once you got into the wards, the doctors and nurses were not at all interested in policing who was visiting at least my grandmother, and they let us be in there. And there was you know there were times when there were clearly you know far more than one person in there with her. Um, but the thing that came across to me, I would say, Tom, is the the doctors and nurses, their sense of humanity and um, and consideration it, it was it was i mean from a from a sort of trainee clergyman's perspective it was quite it was quite a thing to to watch and to be inspired by you know the pastoral um sensitivity which they showed to to my family and even the security guards they you know they can't just let anyone in but they're very very sensitive and they've got a, they've got a hard job you know they've got such a hard job anyway but then with all this covid stuff um so I had some really good chats with with some of the security guards actually one of them was a, a Muslim and I, I, I managed to have quite a good conversation with him while I was there so I, I, I thought um, I thought it was I thought it was um, it was yeah as I say it was it was quite a thing to to sort of be there and to to um, see the see the difficulties um, that these these employees um, face at this time um, 
And I, I, you know, that, that for me kind of is a personal example of the things that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks about how difficult things are for doctors and nurses and for other people who are in professions, you know, some of them caring professions. And they got, in those, they got into those professions because they wanted to help people and, and serve other people. And now they're being, they're, now they're being put in this very difficult position uh, where, they're be, where they have been asked and they are being asked to do things which are really inhumane. Uh, people, people were dying alone in hospitals um, in the spring. I don't know if that's going on anymore. But um, I hope it's not. But but really, that that must have been a, a terrible thing. I can't imagine what it what it must have been like for the doctors and nurses to have to enforce that, and indeed for the security guards. So just you know, once again to say, um, you know, the things that we've said that have been critical um, about about the politicisation of the NHS and, and the inefficiency of its of its institutional structure. Um, once again, you know, there is a there is a difficulty there because we, we, we don't want to be heard to be criticizing these, these people who, who are, who are so brilliant at their jobs. Um, but just to, just to finish off this, this reflection, Tom, um, I was, uh, it was an amazing thing at the end because the security guards and the doctors basically let all of our, all of my granny's visitors be there when she was dying. So there were, I can't remember exactly, but I think there were probably about seven or eight of us gathered around her, her bed as, as she died. Um, all of us, all of us believers. And um, her breathing became very quickly laboured um, over a period of about 20 minutes, which is why we all gathered there. And my grandfather was at her side as she died. And she, her, her breathing uh, gradually uh, sort of died away. It wasn't it wasn't a um, it wasn't a sort of distressing death. She just you know she just gradually sort of she just gradually passed away, um, and it was uh, I've I've never I've never seen anyone die before, and it was it was it was it obviously deeply deeply sad, but I also had a sense of the the holiness of the moment and how how solemn and precious that moment was. Uh, there's, I think it's a psalm. I can't quite remember where it is, but um, there's, I think in a psalm, it says something like, um, precious is, in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. And, um, and that, that, that comes to mind when, when I think about this. But, you know, another thing that came to me is that, you know, really, really, when somebody dies, you know, the, the life that that person has lived and the, the relationships that that person has had kind of, kind of crystallize in, in that moment. And as my, as my grandmother passed away, I, I, I found it, I found it such a, such a special thing uh, to be, to be present there, particularly with my, with my grandfather who's, who's cared for her in such a, such a, as I say, such a devoted and, and Christ-like way to be there when he when he um, effectively committed her into the into the hands and the presence of the Lord. Um, it was it was it was a real uh, it was a real privilege, and it is you know it's it's you know one feels that it's the holiest thing really that one could possibly be one could possibly witness in this life, and. I suppose it just gives me, you know, Tom, in terms of recording the podcast, it just gives me a renewed sense of the, the need that we have to share the hope of the gospel with people. 
because I mean we were just talking about it weren't we before we recorded is that we've we are scared of of dying you know and 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 really really that's that that observation goes a good way to helping us to understand so much of this this new this new covid world that we're living in everyone is terrified of dying we're all terrified of death um but at the end at the end and and we will all face the end at some point at the end our only hope is christ there is no other hope you know we're we're all going to die that will be one, that will be us one day and we have a decision to make you know whether we're going to whether we're going to live in light of eternity or whether we're going to you know um pretends that we we will live forever in in this moment and that we'll never have to face these questions so i i i think tom i i have a renewed sense of the need to share this hope with people and you know it really it really makes such a difference you know it makes such a difference i can't imagine how how raw and and terrible death must be for uh, people who who don't have a hope in christ so you know my my message to anyone who's listening who doesn't have that hope is to 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 find it you know to seek 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 that hope you know and jesus says to us you know seek and you will find ask and it will be given to you knock and the door will be opened so yeah so tom it's been it's been quite an emotional week i don't know if you want to sort of comment on any of that i need to uh, start eating my orange now <laughs> i think the the only uh comment i have is 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 to echo that sort of sense of privilege to be in the, in the presence of, of um of people who are dying um yeah. in that way um i've got a, a visit a wonderful um chap who's 98 now um uh quite regularly um taking communion yeah and he's uh you know he's he's of a he's of the war generation he drew he drove uh, sherman tanks in operation epsom in, in uh, normandy and whilst he was in normandy um he won't mind me sharing this uh story because he, he wrote memoirs and they are if not published they are they are accessible um yeah uh, to all um he met his wife um she's a belgian uh, and he met her on leave and brought her home and they married. They had a wonderful life with many children and now many, many grandchildren um, and great grandchildren around right. them. Um, and he, but he spent the last few years of her life um, caring for her um, because she was getting more and more frail and um, she died in his hands. Um, she, she was coming off the top of the, um, the, the stairlift um, of their home and she got up, she, she sort of sagged forward and he caught her yeah. and in, in his arms um, she died at that moment and um, it's incredibly mo- moving sort of sense when he talks about it he says he's, he felt the, you know, the spirit leave her he, he, felt, he saw the calmness come upon her face and just yeah. uh, the troubles of the last few years fall away yeah uh, and you know a tear comes in his eye because he, he loved her dearly and still does but he knows um, with all his heart and with all his conviction that that, that is not the end yeah um, that in there is not fear, yeah. but there's the joy of, of eventual kind of um, reunion in Christ. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, the psalm you're talking about, Jamie, is Psalm 116. Uh, precious, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Mm. Um, yes, absolutely. Because um, our home isn't here. We're a sort of, we are a pilgrim people on this earth. We are um, not... Uh, not made for this earth in, a, in, a, in one sense um we're made for the next um yeah. 
when everything will be made right. Um, we, before we, before we, we started talking today, we read through that wonderful passage in Revelation where the, where the angel of, who, who, of, of one of the seven bowls of plagues uh, shows John um, Zion and this great city, huge city, enormous, uh, made of gold and jasper and amethyst and pearl uh, and all preciousness. Um, is uh, comes out sort of. I think it's really what really interesting that 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 city that vision is shown to him by the angel responsible for spreading the plague upon the earth, yeah. and just really um, went to my heart sort of spoke that um, out of darkness, out of out of death, out of uh, misery, um, Zion will come and make all things well. Uh, yeah. You know, this COVID is not is not going to last forever. Uh, and but, it, but but what it will do is it hopefully we will show people that that the way that we deal with death has not been adequate for the last you know um, well arguably for the last half a century um, obviously yeah. uh, longer than that we've never been a perfect society but at least um, as a society we knew how to how to think about it and now we're we're terrified of it yeah um, I, I was talking to Jamie about um, scene in Lord of the Rings which is one of my favourite books um, and, and it's actually uh, I, I found out where it was uh, briefly whilst we were chatting um, uh, it was, it's when uh, Gandalf comes across Denethor who's um, trying to uh, um, who's been corrupted by the Palantir, by Sauron and Gandalf says to him, authority is not given to you, steward of Gondor, to order the hour of your death and only the heathen kings under the dominion of the dark power did thus, slaying themselves in pride and despair, murdering their kin to ease their own death. And um, there's a sense in which we have turned from life to death as a response to COVID, you know, that we, we, we've ceased living. Um, we've, we've allowed ourselves to be consumed by pain uh, and fear. Yeah. Um, Whereas the Christian answer is, is not to do that, but to embrace these things with, with trust and hope. Uh, with, and you know what, Jamie, you know, it might well be that um, the Christian response to COVID is to, is to lock down to a degree to do these things, but it should be done not forced upon us, but as a, as a matter of, of, of goodwill. Um, and I don't think it necessarily is. I think there are all sorts of problems with, with, um, with that, but you know, uh, this sort yeah. of compulsion that the government has been using, this fear, this this constant um, propaganda, yeah. Um, yeah, it's not healthy. No, I mean I agree with that, and I think the thing is, Tom, is that you can you can do the same action but with very different motivations, can't you? So you can you can lock down because you're terrified of death and because you have no hope, or you can do it out of genuine altruism and, and love for your neighbour. And I don't think we're I don't think we've ever we've ever questioned the reality that it is a possibility to to disagree with us but but to do it you know from from um you know yeah from love and from christian motivation i think just to draw it back to the thing about about death um you know i think that one of the things that secularism does to us and it's 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 really the great lie of secularism if you like is this is it sort of you know it's this sort of dawkins line or you know before him probably somebody like bertrand russell which is that oh you know the the secular worldview is just obviously the way things are it's obvious that there's no god it's obvious that there's no supernatural etc um but uh this is this is propaganda tom this, it's it, and when when uh, you know my experience this week was i'd have completely the opposite 
reflection, you know, a completely opposite reflection. Um, in the face of death, faith doesn't become, or it hasn't for me anyway, become something which seems absurd, it seems less real. It's something that crystallizes and you feel such a sense of God's presence, such a sense of holiness and of the, the infinite worth of a human being and the, the, the eternality of the human soul, this sort of absolute sense of confidence that this person hasn't just disappeared, but that this person is still present, you know, still present it, to a certain extent sort of in our hearts and in our minds, but, but, but in, in God's sight, she still is and there will be a time when the dead are raised to everlasting life or to judgment, you know, and it's to me, to me, it'd be a far more absurd position to believe that, that the human being has no soul and that upon the death of the body, that the person is simply annihilated. That to me is it's an absurd, it, it strikes me as an absurd belief, you know, it strikes me as a kind of something which is so sort of far-fetched if that makes sense and so i guess what i'm saying about the secular thing is they want to say you know the christian view is far-fetched but i i think the christian view is you know when when we when we when we come up against these extremities in life the christian view is so is so plausible you know c.s lewis talks about the way that christianity has that ring of truth and i think that that's 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 such a good observation. It just, it, it just, it just has the ring of truth. It just seems to have that twist, which reality, which reality has. And the secular view is so empty. It's so, it's so, it so doesn't explain anything. You know, I, Bertrand Russell famously said, you know, when somebody said to him, oh, you know, where does the universe come from? He just said, well, it just is, you know, it's just a brute fact. And I think, you know, how, how incurious can you possibly get? Oh, it just is. Oh, just accept it. I mean, come on. The universe doesn't just exist. It comes from somewhere. You know, it comes from an infinite mind with, with, with glorious power to create an imagination beyond anything that we can conceive. It's, it's so obvious, you know. Come on, Bertrand Russell. You know, wake up, you know. Wake up to, to the reality that your view is, is, is just so, apart from anything else, Tom, and I don't mean this rude, rudely, but just so boring. You know, it's such a boring thing to believe that the universe just is. Um, yeah. Um, Tom, I think we've, we've talked about this um, a good amount. I think that just, I'd like to just, just say one more thing about this and i know we've i know we've spoken about this a lot but i i just want to emphasize once again that part of the real sadness i feel during this whole time and i'm sure that you'd agree with this is that i don't know i don't know what you feel tom but i feel that as a church we've we failed to respond to the events of the last of 2020 i think we failed to respond theologically i think we've i think we've responded in a kind of secular you know, it, within the purview of a secular worldview, if that makes sense. You know, we, 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 have, we have legislated for safety around COVID, but we have not emphasised the glorious hope that we have in the gospel. We've not spoken enough about hope. We've not spoken enough about uh, resurrection. And we've really made the decision to virtue signal about how good we are at wearing masks, how good we are at putting up uh, ropes and signs and, and, and freestanding hand sanitizer stations um but we have not said to the culture what i what we're really trying to say which is regardless of the danger that covid poses and and 
you know, there's a conversation there clearly about, about the danger it poses and, and what we should do in response. But regardless of all that, you know, we need, we need to preach the gospel. You know, we need to say that this is the only hope that we have. You know, COVID is an enemy. It's, it's an agent of death. It, where does death come from? You know, it comes from, it comes from sin and it comes from Satan. And the only one who can save us is, is Jesus Christ. And I don't know what you think, Tom, but I think my, my sadness is, as a church, we haven't communicated this. And I, I, is, is that an unfair thing to say? Or, or do, you, do you agree? No, absolutely. I don't think we've, we've communicated this. We've, we've sort of, uh, we've, become, we've become sort of vaguely spiritualized purveyors of government health advice at times. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. I am... Um, I'm thinking of the uh, of the ridiculous pamphlet that the bishops published only yesterday about how we can intinct um, our uh, our wafers when celebrating communion. Um, for those of you who are, are not in the Church of England uh, and have had sensible measures, things like uh, individual communion cups have not been allowed here. Uh, we spent now a whole year only taking, except for the minister presiding, uh, one. Um, part of the uh of the communion which is uh dreadfully um it's just the bread you mean just the bread, just not, the bread, the yeah, just the bread yeah. not the wine um, yeah which is really uh i think no communion at all uh and um others may have slightly different opinions but i you know as far as i'm concerned the two uh, it's it's it, yeah it's definitely it's definitely more of a matter of theological controversy than than the church of try to lead us to believe but yeah so carry on well, carry on Tom well, no I mean yeah it's this, this idea that um, without wanting to get bogged down too much that, uh, that the Church of England uh, has just blithely uh, um, stated that, um, that Christ is equally present in both parts of the, of the communion both elements yeah. Yeah. Uh, which actually as it happens is not a <laughs> is, is the opposite of the opinion of the founders of the Church of England and whilst it's not yeah. written into our formal um, kind of uh, historic documents and sort of statements of faith. It's implied heavenly by bits of the communion service. Uh, Tom, um, is it not, isn't there an article in the 13 and articles called Of Communion in Both Kinds? Well, Of Communion in Both Kinds says that everyone ought to accept, uh, receive in both kinds. It doesn't say why. Uh, the, the only, yeah, so the no, only... but I would, I would argue therefore that it is written into our formularies because that, that's something that we swear allegiance to as, as yeah. ordained ministers. Quite, so, um, it's article 30 um i think the um what i'm trying to say jamie is not i mean the, yes legally speaking i think obviously we ought to be receiving of both kinds um yeah uh the um what i'm really saying is that the the theological rationale for receiving in only one kind is one that was rejected specifically by the reformers right yeah uh, um, but which has been blithely um assumed by our bishops yeah. which is uh which is a bit irritating our, our bishop nick holton of Salisbury keeps writing that you know you, you you know essentially that you can receive just the bread and it's just as effective as the bread and wine. Um, now it mean, it really really depends how how you define effectiveness in the Eucharist and maybe we shouldn't go too far into this uh, because it's quite a, quite an arcane and uh, debate. But I think it's interesting. Um, yeah, I don't think it's that arcane, uh, Tom. Uh, I think I think the the reformers would have argued that the Christ is is present in different ways in the, in the body and the blood at, Eucharist, uh, at the Eucharist. Um, he's present spiritually in both, um, and his presence is real in as much as real uh, spiritual presence is real. Uh, but, um, but that, uh, because, uh, you know, in, in a sense, spiritual presence is more real than physical presence. 
uh, I think it is not hard to argue. Um, but uh, the, um, the fact is, from a reformed perspective, the two elements serve different purposes. And you see this in the prayer of humble access, where we, where we pray that the, the body and the blood separately do slightly different things, uh, which would be a heresy if the Bishop of, uh, Bishop of Salisbury is correct. Uh, but um, thankfully, he is not. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, think, I think the point is the bishops have now spent uh, 10 months trying to work out, work their heads around these issues and have finally produced a document that's completely unworkable, which is pretty par for the course for bishops. Uh, what what document this, is this, Tom? And we'll put this on the show notes, obviously, for everyone. It's the new, it's the new advice about intinction. So they're, they're basically Oh, yeah, yeah. Saying, Continue with that, yeah. They're basically saying that, um, that the priest can now intinct on behalf of everyone else. Ironically, uh, intinction was the first thing they banned back in uh, March, uh, where they said so, they shouldn't so, intinct. Tom, have we been clear with our listeners that intinction is when you, when you, when you dip a, a piece of consecrated bread into consecrated wine and then consume yeah. it? And so, sorry, I don't even understand this. So what the bishops are saying that the priest can intinct on behalf of everyone else. Yes, so so yes, absolutely. Um, with a absurdly detailed list of uh, suggested actions, uh, you right. have to... Uh, you know, I mean, it really is, it really is stupid um, <laughs> that, you know, you have to brush the wafer across the surface of the wine. So it doesn't, there's no chance of you dipping your fingers into the, uh, into right. the wine. Right. Uh, wow. That sort of thing. Uh, Amazing. And sort of a, a, a sort of blow by blow um, sort of working through how it might work. And it, and it is um, absurd. Uh, not really because intinction is absurd. I mean, I, I personally don't favor intinction, but, you know, some people do prefer it. Uh, I think it's more common maybe in Catholic parishes than in than elsewhere. It's, it's um, just unpleasant, Tom, I think. I think it's just unpleasant with everyone sticking their wafers into the, the wine, you know, their fingers getting there and stuff like that. You know, do you think just, so? I mean, I, I, mean, I think if you're careful, you're, you know, there's no reason my finger should get in there anyway. Why not, but, why um, not just drink it? I don't, you know. I don't really can understand. I, Tom, can I just say, just as an aside here, this is why I have such a problem with this whole, this whole debate. And, you know, you might think this is quite ironic because I'm clearly a bit sort of higher up the candle than you are. Uh, as we stand at the moment, but what I always what I always say to people, especially you know, I'm, I'm friends with my family's re- evangelical and and all, loads of friends who are evangelical and everything. And what I always say is like, you know, I'm interested in what Christ intended in in what what he was talking about, the Lord's Supper, right? And when he says, you know, um, he says, eat eat the bread, you know, do this in, in memory of me. And then at the end of supper, he says, you know, drink this cup. He doesn't say and and they're equivalent to each other and you can do one of them but not the other one he doesn't say that you know so why why did he why did he issue those two separate though linked commands and so this idea of equivalency or concomitance as it's called technically which is you know that that christ is fully present in the bread or the wine and so you can have one or the other i just think that explicitly uh disregards the the clear command of christ which is to do both right and apart from anything else uh, if you're thinking about the Eucharist as something where you remember Christ, and I do believe it's that, I think it's more than that, but I think it's also that, then clearly there's a difference because his body was broken, right? But his blood was shed. And those are two different, they're related things, you know? So when you remember his body being broken, that's a different thing to remembering his blood, which has been poured out for you, you know, the blood of the covenant, which is, you know, related to the blood of the animal sacrifices of, of the, you know, the Mosaic covenant and so on and so forth. So for me, it's, it's like a straightforward uh, biblical issue when somebody says this thing about concomitants. Anyway, sorry, sorry, carry on. I know. I'm no, 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 I, I agree with you. Um, of course, uh, 
and um, I would agree that it goes more than it's more than just a memorial. But um, you know, um, the, the the fact is that uh, if churches sharing the cup was actually a significant risk of infection, we would see over over time, over say the last hundred years, uh, significantly higher death rates in churches than out of churches, and actually uh, because <laughs> because we'd all be spreading flu around, uh, which is obviously deadly to people who are old yeah. anyway. Um, I, you know, uh, and indeed. Um, we don't. In fact, we see longer lived people in churches than outside of churches because sort of religion and spirituality and living a full life actually uh, gives you more to live for. Um, well, no, so, Tom, Tom, hang on one, one moment here. I agree with that. Right. But are you, you, you're almost sounding like a bit like you're falling into the same trap because it's not just that it's good for you on a psychological level. It's that we it's believe, good on a spiritual level. We believe yeah. that the Holy Spirit works through these things to confer blessing and benefit on us, which is frequently yeah. a, a, a physical benefit. Right. Yeah. So if you, if you think that the bread and the wine, obviously we've got slightly different views of what's going on in the Eucharist, I imagine, but we both believe that the Holy Spirit is working through the elements in some way, right? Um, We both would say, albeit probably with different sort of ways of explaining it, that this is the body and blood of Christ, you know, maybe in a spiritual sense, you know, I'd be, I'm much more happy talking about it as a kind of sacramental body, uh, but, uh, but, you know, believing in some kind of miraculous transformation, however you understand it, right? There's still a God who's working through it, right? And if, yeah, if yeah. we believe that God is working through it, why, why would you think that it wouldn't convey supernatural benefit and healing, physical healing? You know, yeah. in the New Testament, uh, Paul says that somebody has died because they've unworthily taken it, right? So if somebody dies because they take it unworthily, surely somebody can can live and 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 be healed and know blessing and benefit through it. So I would say that this is, you know, this idea that the Eucharist is dangerous, you know, that the elements are conveyors of 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 germs, potential conveyors of germs. I just think this is coming from a place of sheer unbelief. It's sheer unbelief. However, you, however you, however you. Um, However you approach it, it's, it's yeah. coming from a view of reality that there is no God, there is no Holy Spirit. The, the greatest reality and challenge that we face at the moment is the coronavirus. It is the most powerful force in the world, and we have to do everything we can to avoid it, which includes compromising on our practices, our, our practices as Christians, and compromising, I would say, on being obedient to Christ. And not believing that there is a God, not believing that there is a Holy Spirit, and not believing that the sacraments are worth doing. So we say we'll, we'll obey Christ, but only if we deem it to be safe. And that's that's the thing that upsets me, Tom, about this: is it's it's coming from a position of unbelief. Yeah, no, right, I, I, know you, that, I know that's a bit of a rant, but no, 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 you're quite right. You're quite right to, uh, to yes, I, obviously, um, the the there is a. Um, a strange lack of belief in the efficiency of the of the elements in across the church actually and it comes from every i had a long argument with someone uh, on reddit uh, who was arguing that you know it's absolutely right for churches to shut and i said but look you know we're told that um christ says to to, to start sounding like you jamie that you know christ says eat my eat my flesh and drink my blood and he said well that's spirit that's that's just a figurative christ doesn't really mean that and i said okay <laughs> well that's fine um uh the um uh if you if you think that that's fine but there are others who don't um and uh, well, so you know, he, he meant he meant figuratively eat he didn't yeah. mean actually do it he just uh, meant he, did, he meant you know it's, it's just he was just it's just a way of speaking jamie it wasn't it was you know it was christ just you know just 
He just, he just my, used those words uh, to mean yeah. nothing, really, Jamie. He just said them. <laughs> they my, my, my children do that when I tell them to come upstairs and get changed. They say, oh, he just means it figuratively. He just means, you know, have a, have a kind of, have a, have a spirit of compliance towards, <laughs> towards your father. He doesn't mean I actually want you to go upstairs and get changed. Sorry, sorry um, carry on. But then, then the, the conversation continued and I sort of said, but okay, right, you can say that. Are we also going to say that, um, that Paul writing uh, about the, about communion, about how it's, you know, um, life-giving that's also presumably uh, a figurative way of, a way of speaking and then when he talks about it being ha- one of the ways that we uh, says when we eat this cup and drink this uh, uh, so when we eat this bread and drink this wine we proclaim christ crucified and risen to the world yeah um, when he's saying that presumably that's also spiritual uh, uh, figurative talk and not you know uh, yeah. and the problem is that paul obviously ascribes effect to the sacraments uh, and is worried about people taking them unworthily so if you are it's very hard then to argue on the one hand christ is speaking simply spiritually figuratively and paul is is yeah is there is completely misinterpreting christ presumably there goes your doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture um, that's down the so, toilet isn't it yeah so it's a really tricky one and then the final thing i said to him is whether or not either of us is correct and, I'm, and i give thanks to that there are people who can stay strong and firm in faith without the, the life-giving grace that the sacraments impart i give thanks that there are people that can do that it's not the case for everyone and we're therefore clearly in a one corinthians chapter you know um, six or seven i can't remember which one it is maybe a bit later situation where you have the strong and the weak the strong who do not need the sacraments who can persevere in christ without it and the weak who clearly do I don't know. I don't know, Tom. I don't know if I'd. I don't know if I'd even make that concession. To be honest with you, um, uh, and, and I, therefore, sorry, you carry on. You carry on. But no, but therefore, at the very least, the strong um, who who don't see the need for it um, sh- should uh, should celebrate it and uphold the right of others to to take it because um, because they need it. And that's yeah. the that's the only that's the only argument you need really when it comes to a Christian disagreement. If so, if you, what you're doing is leading other people astray, even if it's okay for you paul says that's you know you you need to show grace yeah Um, Yeah. that's really key Um, well i mean look tom i yeah i can see where you're coming from there and i think that's an unassailable argument because you're starting from that person's premises and, and working forward but i think you and i would both want to say that obedience to christ is what it means to be a christian at a fundamental level and yeah. that sacraments convey grace you know so the the eucharist conveys grace baptism conveys grace and if you don't have them you are you are um you are not you are not fully obeying christ i'm sorry but that's just the, that's the reality and you are you are missing out on the grace that is imparted through those sacraments you know i've been yeah. listening uh, to an audiobook of mere christianity by c.s lewis recently which is a is a masterpiece and um a masterpiece of clear uh, wise, thoughtful communication. And C.S. Lewis says, uh, God has given us at least three direct ways to, to receive his life, right? And those ways are baptism, the Eucharist, you know, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, and, and prayer. Those three things were all commanded by Jesus Christ in one way or another. Now, you might want to have a conversation about the way that, you know, reading scripture, for example, imparts grace, perhaps, but uh, that's what C.S. Lewis says. And he's saying, look, I, I'm not saying there aren't other ways to, 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 to receive the grace of God. It's not for me to say that there aren't other ways. But if you want to get from London to Edinburgh, you take the trains, right? You don't walk, you take the train, you take the fast train. And that's what I want to say to people who are, 
who are missing out on the sacraments is you take the fast train. You take the train that Jesus says, you know, get on that train. It will take you straight there, you know, as much as, as much as, as much as you can in this life. Don't rely on like God in nature or in art or whatever. I'm not saying God can't communicate through those things, but Jesus has given us clear instructions and we should at least try and follow them. That's the thing I can't get my head around is when, when Christians say, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, we just have a meal together. That's the Eucharist, isn't it? Well, no, it's not actually. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to be intolerant, but you know, it's, it's just not. Anyway, I think we've had a, we've had a great conversation about that, Tom. Yeah. Um, it's related. Sorry, sorry. Can I just say because because the final the final word went to him, which was yeah. that's fine. You're still in error, which I think. Well, okay. How can you argue with that? Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Well, you're you're yeah. Well, we're the the. <laughs> I'm so, reminded. Okay. I'm reminded of the word of of Tupac Shakur, which is uh, only God can judge me. So uh, <laughs> you know, God will judge us in the last day. Um, yeah. So a bit of uh, feedback from somebody. Uh, this is related. Last week uh, we were talking about um, I forget what context it was, but I referenced an article by Charlie Bell, who's an academic at Cambridge. And he talked at one point about the prolocutors of Canterbury and York. I didn't know what the word prolocutor meant. So I speculated that it might have meant the archbishops of York and Canterbury. Turns out I was wrong about that. The prolocutors of Canterbury and York are the senior members of the House of Clergy in each province. For our non-Anglican listeners, we're talking here about the General Synod, which is basically a kind of a, a, a gathering of a three groups of people who meet together and, and kind of govern the Anglican or the Church of England. It's not really worth getting into the details. But anyway, so the point is, is that the archbishops didn't say what I, what I thought they might have said last week, but it was actually the prolocutors of each house. And these prolocutors, Simon Butler and Chris Newlands, um, apparently, so this is a quotation from what I received, made an extraordinarily over-the-top statement at the start of the pandemic. And I've got a link to a, to a very good article in the Church Times uh, from the beginning of April, which uh, goes into, is by Hattie Williams, and I will uh, post it on the show notes, but it gives a really good uh, summary of the thinking of, of uh, various bishops, and as I say, the prolocutors, of the uh, provinces who are um, speaking, I suppose, on behalf of uh, General Synod. And I'm just trying to find, I can't quite find the quotation, but there's this, the, the quotation from last, last week. Um, sorry, I'm just having a look for it. I can't, I can't, I can't see it, but basically they say in this, in this, uh, in this statement, they said, uh, if you go outside, you are risking, the lives of people around you and you 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 it doesn't say quite you will kill people but basically it, it's kind of you know it's it's going far far over the top really in terms of in terms of um oh, i wish i could find it sorry i can't oh yeah no i have i've got it here um every trip we take outside our home endangers life ours our families even perfect strangers such trips should only be taken for essential ministry. And essentially Charlie Bell's point was that that's not, that's, that's demonstrably false because uh, it may, you know, trips outside may, may endanger other people, but to say they will is just, you know, it's, 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 it's empirically false anyway. So, so thanks for that piece of feedback and I will, I'll post that article up. It's really interesting to go back. Uh, this person also says that his own thoughts about all of the stuff with COVID started to crystallize uh, when he read this statement, and, and uh, it also encompasses this claim that all clergy, this was back in April, would start officiating at many more funerals because of the amount of people who would die. Um, but this person says that on the same day that he read all this, 
um, his diocesan statistician sent round an email to say that by the government's own figures at the time, the number of extra funerals would be around 0.4 per parish. So, you know, if that, if that were true, that would be very, very low and, and, and um, very, very low. I mean, in comparison to the kind of, the kind of apocalyptic doom mongering that was being um, suggested. And it'd be interesting actually, Tom, I don't really know this, but um, I've seen no increase in, in deaths around. We don't know, we don't have any parishioners who have died of the coronavirus. And obviously that's just my experience, but I'd be interested to hear from priests if you have had an increase of, of deaths over the last eight months. <laughs> I think some areas have. My, one of my colleagues um, in Wooden Bassett has had a few. Um, yeah. Do you know, um, I think the, the, the real thing is, Jamie, that um, even if Imperial College's worst assumptions were correct and we had an extra 500,000 deaths, that wouldn't even quite double our funeral requirements for a year. Right. You know, um, so the churches have the capacity, um, whether the, whether the um, whether the civil structure would have had that is another question but you know it wouldn't have been outright you wouldn't have been doing 20, 20 a day although you might have been i guess at a, at a really uh, if it had peaked at one particular time but i mean the, the of course that 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 um forecast was was wrong uh, yeah. and uh, was always going to be wrong and that's not sh- you know, shown as much by um, sweden and their uh, the fact that the, the virus peaked and declined there at the same time as it did here um yeah. you know this that's the counterfactual the counterfactual isn't endless rise of the virus it's it's a natural peak and a natural fall yeah um, the uh, what's that called uh, the gompetz curve gompetz curve is yeah. describes um uh, the epidemic curves yeah 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 um, well sorry uh, Karen. anyway you know um the the point is and even even if it had been correct about that five hundred thousand, even neil ferguson admitted and admitted again recently that 75 percent of those would have been deaths that would have happened in that year anyway yeah um so it would have just moved them uh so I don't know, Jamie. It, forward, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, presumably there have been times where the church has been overstressed and had a vast number of extra funerals, uh, and we'd have coped just like, um, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Do. Well, yeah, yeah, um, and 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 just to say, if there are, if there is anyone listening who has had, you know, a priest or uh, anyone who who has noticed uh, an increase in deaths and funerals in their area, we would we would like to hear genuinely. Uh, because I think one of the things that's so bizarre about this whole thing is we're being told that there's this enormous epidemic, but we don't actually know anyone who's unwell. I mean, I, I, I know of one person who's died with COVID, but this person was very, very unwell anyway, and probably would have probably, he, he caught it in hospital, uh, he probably would have died anyway. So that's the extent of my experience of people who have actually had any kind of symptoms. I think my, several people in my family have had covid um, mostly uh, it was back in January, February, March when they were all coming. They, my brother went on to a ski holiday and came back without any sense of te- uh, taste and smell. Of course, ski holidays were where a lot of it spread. Yeah. Uh, and my, I had a cousin who came back from Russia with classic COVID symptoms. Um, the, they're both fine. I, I do know someone who's passed away from it, very tragically, quite young. Um, yeah. And that was back in um, Easter last year. He was a minister in the Church of England uh, and a godly man. Uh, and very sad. Obviously, uh, I should say, you know, it's very easy to talk about numbers as if, they, you know, you know, there, there's a tragic story behind every death uh, in this life. Um, that is, is the case even with the hope of resurrection, you know, uh, the, the way I'd say, um, because, because the pain is real. Uh, even, even if the sting of death has been taken away, 
I think pain is still there um, in this life. Uh, but um, the pain of uh, separation. But yeah, um, whether we're approaching it all from the wrong from the wrong angle is what I would say. Yeah, and also, Tom, I think from a Christian perspective. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know whether tragedy is the, or tragic is the right word to use about every single death, because when people die, you know, say in scripture, right, in the Old Testament, there's often that kind of epithet when somebody dies old and full of years, right? And the, and the, the, yep. the point there is that they've lived a full good life and they die, you know, presumably in their context, in, in, in communion with, with Yahweh. Um, you know, entrusting, entrusting themselves into his, into his presence or however, however they understood that. It's a complicated issue. But I'm just using that as an example, right? Um, for Christians who die, you know, they die perhaps old, perhaps they've been unwell for a while. They've had a lifetime of, of good works, of good experience. And they move, you know, if they move painlessly into God's presence or, you know, relatively painlessly, I don't, I don't, really, th- I don't really see how that's a tragedy, I see that as, as a bereavement and it can be painful, but all of those other things, which, which, um, which, which soften that blow. I, I think, I don't know if tragedy is the right word to describe it. Obviously when a young, when a young person dies and they've got their whole life ahead of them and something, a tragic accident or they get some terrible illness or you die of COVID or whatever. Yeah, of course that's tragic. But I think the problem with this whole thing is that the majority of these you know, like the average age of death, just, you know, factually is a, for COVID is, is what, 83, right? Which is, which is slightly higher than the normal average age of death. Now, is it, is it right to describe every single one of those deaths as a tragedy? I just, I can't see that that's the case, even just from a, from a secular perspective, because, um, you know, people who live that long, they've had, they've had, you know, they've had a really long life and lots of them will have had great lives and they'll be suffering and, and, you know, the life comes to an end, doesn't it? So I don't want to be heartless, but all I'm saying is that there are, there are clearly deaths which are, which are far more tragic, uh, deaths of young people and so on, than, you know, people who have died in, at a ripe old age and they've lived a great life, you know. And I, I hope that's not too insensitive a thing to say, but that's the kind of distinction which isn't being made. You know, there's lots of, like, politicians, talk, oh, every single death is a tragedy, etc. Well, you know, no, I don't really think that that's true. Sorry, I mean, I don't know if you think that's insensitive, but... No, no, no I, th- I think you're right, Jamie. It's, it's... Um, yeah, so um, just to say on this piece of feedback as well, um, this person asked us if we, we might be turning our attention to uh, a couple of interesting issues, uh, climate change and Black Lives Matter, uh, this person uh, specifically um, asked us to talk about. And we're not going to do that now because we haven't had uh, time to prepare or anything like that. But I think we'd, we'd like to talk about those those issues because they are very uh, salient and important in our culture um so we'll 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 get to that at some point um i think what would be good just to do um just to do now tom is a little bit of a a, a news update and um then we'll probably close after that but um yeah just just to say somebody sent me a video which i watched just before um just before we came we started um recording and it's a video of of you know there was this protest i think in London, I'm not sure when it was, whether it was on Saturday or there's a big protest in London. And once again, there's um, widespread reports of, of heavy handed policing, you know, this kind of political, politicized uh, two tier policing, which is not applied to Black Lives Matter protesters or to Extinction Rebellion, etc, etc. And this video, I'll try and post it on the show notes. I'm not sure if I can because I got it in a, in a message, but um, 
but it is essentially of a man who looks like he's probably about 60 being arrested by four police officers. And he is, the video is three and a half minutes long. And as he's being, as he's being dragged down to the floor by these four police officers, he is howling like a dog. It is, it is, he's making, he's making, he's clearly so psychologically distressed by what is happening to him. And he's crying out, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Help me, help me. And he, you know, literally, literally, literally uh, yelping like an animal. And these, there are four large police officers and, a, and there's a line of police officers standing in front of the people who are filming it. And the people who are filming it are trying to reason with these people and they're, they're police officers and they're ignoring it. Um, and it is so distressing. I have to say, Tom, I was so distressed watching it. Whatever that man has done, and, and in the video, the people who are filming it saying, this man, you know, he has done nothing. He's just been talking to people. Whatever that man has done, he is clearly not, uh, not a, an incredibly strong man. He's clearly a man who is in psychological distress. And it does not take four police officers to arrest him, to drag him down to the floor and handcuff him. They were, they were, they were doing it for several minutes. What on earth is going on? I mean, you know, why yeah. are the police, why do the police think that they can behave like this in our country? I mean, it makes me so angry that this is what uh, our country has become. So uh, um, I quite agree, Jamie. I think the police need to think very carefully about how they've been dealing with this. Um, I mean, fundamentally they do have a choice they do have a choice they have a choice to disobey orders they have a choice to resign from the police uh, if they do not agree with what is happening um, i will not hear the argument that you know oh well they're just doing what politicians have said and it's the politicians fault they're just they're just uh you know uh, performing their duties under the law because that is you know that um, just following orders excuse is not is not an excuse under any circumstances for it's, the it's, sort it's, of abuses yeah um, that we're seeing and, and there's a number of really concerning things happening so i mean if people remember on remembrance sunday um the extinction rebellion performed a uh, rather tasteless uh um, protest at the center park in london and yeah. the police just stood around watching it and if you go back even further you go back to like the, the black life matters um, protests the police took the knee um, yeah. they stood around watching uh, a load of protesters chuck a statue into the harbor in bristol yeah, in you know, the middle, in the middle of the first lockdown, it was yeah. in the middle of the first lockdown. Carry on, carry on. And um, you know, the fact is, Jamie, that we have a democratic right to protest, and the government sh needs to show that they are listening. That they're, you know, it's, it's not, it's not okay just to ban protests because of because of this because uh, of this uh, lockdown. What can we say to? Russia now, when they when Russia ban a protest, all Russia need to do is shrug their shoulders and say, "Well, it's a public health minister," you know. Yeah. And we can't even ask for evidence because this government hasn't given any evidence to show that banning protest is is proportionate and required. We know that the protests in the summer did not, and there were very large ones, did not cause booms in, in COVID. Yeah. We know that. Um, and there was and no there was no evidence to uh, to explore that and to communicate that to the public. Uh, the government uh, overlooks that. We, we also know there's some hilarious, I say hilarious, it's tragically hilarious, pictures of, of a farmer's market going on at the same time as the protest in London, which was just as crowded as the protest. You yeah. know, that, if, if, if that was no health um, emergency, then the protest wasn't. We, you can only conclude the government do not want to have protests because they do not want the, um, the news and the, the sort of strength of, uh, pro, uh, of feeling to be known 
because um, it might sway people perhaps uh, against their regime because yeah. it might um, cause them to hear uncomfortable truths. Um, yeah, this is, this is know, political protesting, uh, political yeah. policing, sorry, Tom. Sorry, I didn't mean to Absolutely. interrupt you. Yeah. And, and another thing that we've seen recently is this uh, church, and maybe we're going to talk about this church in Milton Keynes, where the police turned up to try and shut down a legal broadcast service. Um, the broadcast service was, um, and, and I'll, I'll send it to you, Jamie. Uh, the broadcast service was taking place uh, perfectly legally. It had uh, a number of people there, including musicians, including technicians, ministers, readers, all of which are permissible under law and guidelines. The police turned up uh, and told the, told the minister that they had to um, stop it. The minister pointed out the guidelines to the police. The police's response uh, to the minister pointing out the law was to call for backup. Another seven police turned up uh, you know, at this church service. With about, 50, the police, um, with about 15 people there. Um, the police then later went round to the house of the minister and informed him that he was going to be charged under COVID regulations. Um, the, the problem with all of this is that the police were acting completely without authority and outside of the law. And the police commissioner has released a statement apologising for this. Well, that's not enough. I think we ought to be seeing res resignations of those policemen. It's, it's not even as if they were caught up in the moment. You know, you yeah. might expect, you know, if, if the policeman is walking down the road, sees something they think might be a crime, acts on the spur of the moment, and it turns out not to be a crime, that's, that's one thing. Yeah. But to deliberately go to a church, to, and then to claim that they had authority that they do not have, when they had presumably ample time, because it yeah. only takes 15 minutes, Jamie, to look up the actual law, yeah. um, you know, uh, to, to, to sort of to look at it, um, and to call out for backup rather than when the minister actually shows them the law to call for more minister, more, more policemen to turn up and shut it down. It is outrageous. Um, you know, heads should roll. Well, it's, in, it's inexcusable. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, Tom, sorry. I was, I was no, just no. going to, I was just going to come in there and say, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. I don't like uh, this. I don't like this kind of culture of, of, of politicized resignations. What I would prefer to see is a, is a, is a consistent disciplinary process being applied uh, in these in this context. But I think that the encroaching um, sense of living in a police state is very real. I went to a major city recently because I had a, um, a meeting, I won't say where, but I, I, I drove past a roadblock with, uh, with about three or four police cars and there were at least eight police officers there, there may have been more, and they were literally just stopping random vehicles and asking people where they were going. Um, which is which is a which is a you know it's a characteristic of a police state that you're not allowed to move around freely without being stopped and questioned by the police. And this is this is not the country I grew up in. This is not the country I read about in the history books. This is the problem. The problem with all of this is that uh, we. In the, in the first instance, we actually ignored the WHO's guidelines. Sweden were the ones who followed the, followed the WHO's guidelines initially when this whole thing started. We got the idea for the lockdown from China. And China is one of the most repressive and evil, uh, it has one of the most repressive and evil governments on the face of the earth, the Chinese Communist Party. They are genocidal. They, they, uh, they oversee a police state where, where people have very, very little freedom and they're, they're controlled and oppressed. And we decided to imitate them. Big mistake. Big, big mistake. And until we admit that we have made that mistake and we turn around and we start to govern this country in a way which is consistent with the ideals of liberty, 
and of democracy, which come out of a Christian worldview, I might say, I might add, until we do that, we are going to keep on going down this road towards authoritarianism and politicized two-tier policing. One of the, one of the values that we have as a, as a nation, which we, we have really exported all over the world, is the idea of the rule of law. And the basic idea of the rule of law is that there is one law for everybody. There is one law for everybody. It doesn't matter how high up you are, you are not above the law and you cannot break the law. And that applies to policemen as well. If you break the law, you will be subject to the law, or at least you should be. And this is the, we, we are losing sight of these, these fundamental principles, uh, which we, which we are, have, have exported to the world. Now, I'd just like to say, Tom, just as an aside here, um, like the thing with the NHS, we know that there are loads of great policemen out there, policemen and women who don't want to be involved in this, who've got no time for this and who are heartbroken when they, when they hear about these things. I mean, one of my family members um, is a, is a, is, a, is a policeman. I, was, I saw him on, on, on Monday. And I have no doubt that there are loads of great police officers out there, which makes it all the more tragic when police behave in this heavy-handed, violent and inhumane way. And so we, you know, I think our message is, our message is clear, isn't it, Tom, is that we want to see justice in, this, in, these, in these actions. And we want to see the police, the policemen and women policing by consent and not through violence, not through, aggressive, not through aggression, and being fair and equitable in their treatment of people. Do you know what, Jamie, I, I, mean, I sort of agree with you. I, I'm, I'm still going to say, you know, in the end, if, if all of the good policemen who, who cared about this deeply resigned, um, then that, that would be an end to this, you know, because they would have to negotiate, they'd have to walk back, the government couldn't continue. I'm, I'm sorry, Jamie, but people who are part of the police are part of this oppression at the moment and they have a choice. I know it's hard to make, but they have a choice. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's just, it's an easy, I, I suppose, Tom, you know, I see what you're saying, but it's, it's an easy thing to say, isn't it? It's a much harder thing to do. I mean, th you, could, you could very well apply a similar kind of logic to being involved in a, in a church where, you know, you, you're at variance with the, with the official line, which is, which is, you know, I think a pretty good characteristic of, uh, characterization of where we're at. Um, I, I don't know whether we are though, Jimmy. I mean, the official line isn't 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 quite as clear cut as, for example, the laws that the, the, the police are, are working under. But yes, okay. Um, at the very least, they could be um, standing up as we are um, in a non anon a non anonymized way and speaking out against the injustices. That yeah. I think we probably do. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, that, say that, they're that, there and just quiet quietly consenting is is, is not okay. But okay. Well, well, no. I mean, yeah. I I think we're on the same page here. I guess I'm just thinking. You know, if you were in a situation like you know my situation, right? My my job, my my income, um, is is all reliant. Sorry, my my income, my house, and so on is all reliant upon my job. And you know, I've got three young children, right? If I were a policeman, and my income, I had one income, and I were reliant on um, on, on that income for, for, my, for my whole family and say I had a mortgage to pay or something like that, to quit my job in protest would be, you know, it would be a very, very difficult thing to do. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying therefore no one should ever do it. All I'm saying is that it's a, you know, it's a big thing to do, particularly for people with, who are responsible for, for others, not, you know, children and so on. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, let's just talk because we haven't actually um, we haven't actually done a news update. So let's just go through some of the stuff that's happened this week. Um, obviously, 
Oh, Tom, I'm so dismayed by this. I mean, this was all going on while my personal stuff was, was happening. But basically, we've been put back into this tier system. I haven't looked at the statistics, but my, my, um, my understanding is that the way that this tier system is now being applied is way harsher than it was prior to the lockdown. I know several places, like where I used to live, for example, in Winchester, and, I, and Canterbury is the same, actually. I've lived in both those places, which were in tier one when we went into a lockdown, which was supposed to stop transmission, but now they're both in tier three. Now, how does that work? Are you, is, 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 sorry, Tom, just to, just, just to say explicitly, is the implication there that the, the lockdown hasn't worked by any chance? Is that the implication? I, I don't know, Jimmy, I think, um... <sighs> It's really, it's a really bizarre one because they, they, they sort of de- they, they're doing a localized system that isn't very localized. Um, so Kent is in tier three because of a small area in Kent that has been rising throughout the lockdown. Yeah, in um, South London, an area yeah, in South London when, yeah. when the majority of Kent is rural. Um, and you know quite why they couldn't, you know, jig the tiers so that uh, you know boundaries so that um, you know there's, make a differentiation. Um, the other thing, of course, is that tier three is effectively locked down. Yeah. No, there's no. In fact, tier two is effectively locked down, which is where most of us are. You're not allowed to see your friends, you're not allowed to see your family. It needs to be justified. Um, I'm, I'm in tier. I'm in tier three. I'm still in tier it's three. It's losing. It's losing the country. I'm in tier two, and I was in tier one. Um, it's losing the country uh, 900 million pounds a day. Yep. Uh, it, you know, and that is money that could, you know, at the very least, be spent on significant other. You know, it could be invested in the NHS. You know, it could, people are going to suffer because of the tier system just as much as because of a lockdown. It's just a lockdown in another name. Uh, and the balance needs to be fought for. Um, now, I know that the, there have been some, uh, a large-scale, relatively large-scale Tory rebellion has um, caused the government maybe to rethink a little bit about, uh, some, we're going to be going to reviews in on the 16th, I believe. Um, we're, we're, having, we're having reviews of the tiers every fortnight. Right. But they, yeah. they conceded. I mean, this is how crazy this government has got. They conceded that we would have a review of the overall policy in two months, whereas they were yeah. planning on having a review in four months. Yeah. I mean, they need to be justifying and reviewing this almost daily because it's still a significant restriction on our liberties and our human rights. And actually, there's, there's, I'll send you a link, Jamie, because I think um, some people might be interested in filling it out. But the um, Parliamentary Commission on Human Rights is, is putting out a call for evidence. Uh, which um, you may be, people may be interested in filling out. Um, uh, yeah. Just talk about. But you know, Tom, can I just? Sorry to interrupt. Sorry, were you finished? I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. no go ahead. Yep. Well, what I was going to say is that let's just let's just look at the facts here, right? If many places went from tier one or tier two to tier three, then surely <laughs> the implication there is that the lockdown has not worked. I mean, if if the lockdown worked. We would be going. We would be going from tier three and tier two to lower tiers, wouldn't we? Not the other way around. Uh, How could you have jumped up from tier one to tier three when there's been a lockdown, which is supposed to have been effective in stopping transmission? Do you know what, Jamie? I mean, it, the problem is that um, there's no real, and there never has been any real justification for what lockdowns are supposed to do. I mean, if the tier tiering system works to bring down cases, um, uh, then. Uh, and, it, and it looked like it was tier three was definitely bringing down cases, uh, or cases were dropping before that in a variety of places in, in the northwest where the, where the epidemic was going. Um, what's happened is that the, the, the advisors to the government have decided that tier one doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work to slow down. It doesn't work to stop cases. So that tier one was just the rule of six and um, uh, indoors or outdoors, pretty much. There's no, no other restrictions. Um, 
uh, and pubs closing at um, 10 o'clock, which they've rode back on, don't you? Now, now they're allowed to go to 11, but this is whole nonsense about a substantial meal. Um, I, I think uh, I think tier three is effectively locked down. Don't, uh, um, whether it ha the government haven't really done a, um, a cost benefits analysis, they published something that looked like it might be, but they promised one, and then they uh, they produce something that's so weak that, that it doesn't really tell us anything. Um, the, was, the government a, asked a, an absolute. It was an absolute non-event there. Yeah, the their, government uh, are convinced. Analysis. Or at least the government's advisors are convinced that we're still in a situation where if there was no restrictions on the coronavirus, the coronavirus would boom and most of us are still vulnerable. Um, that's what they think. Their, their, their actions are consistent with that position. Um, well, other scientists, uh, um, uh, to, to a degree they are. Um, they are also convinced that targeted, um, targeted interventions for the vulnerable wouldn't work as the Great Bank declaration although they've never really been tried in any real sense um here at least and um the so the logically the only thing they can do then is keep us in lockdown but politically that's impossible because uh you know they lockdown endless lockdown obviously would uh would start killing people and start you know it already is um destroying our economy uh we can't sustain that so you end up in an impossible situation in which basically what they've done is rebranded lockdown as yeah. tier three yeah uh and they put as much as country into it as they can yeah uh and uh tier two is also effectively locked up um yeah, yeah. this will keep going until people stop obeying effectively and they will well then, well, it's, well it could also there could also be a political change couldn't there tom that's the that's the other alternative so has lockdown failed well it never really had any um obvious benefit i mean wales had an earlier circuit breaker i don't know if you remember in the month, weeks before yeah. lockdown yeah uh you know, everyone was saying we need to have a circuit breaker now and avoid the need for a longer lockdown later. Wales has gone back into lockdown. Yeah, uh, <laughs> well, it's it's. it's uh, I mean, I've, you, I'm sure you've heard on the radio a number of times, Tom. People quoting, if you listen to talk radio as I do, quoting uh, something which is attributed to Einstein, but probably probably didn't say it, which is that the def the first sign of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And that's what we're doing. But we're we're doing we're doing something over and over again, which is incredibly destructive. And there is no evidence at all that any lockdowns have had a beneficial effect. I know you're sort of trying to be sensible about it, Tom, but really I've come to the stage and I'm sure many people have as well, where I don't believe a thing the government say about this. I don't believe the scientific advisors. I don't believe the government. I believe that this is all nakedly cynical and political what's going on. And, and just, to, just to be even handed here, I don't want to just attack the government and the, and the scientific advisors. I also want to criticize the Labour Party and the SNP because they, especially the Labour Party, are meant to be providing an opposition to this. And you know what they did when the vote went through the other day? They saved Johnson's bacon by abstaining, which I think is a cowardly, cynical, political act. They are, they are trying to step aside while the, the Tory government makes a total mess of this, as, as pretty much everyone accepts that they are now. The country yeah. is in ruins and the, and the Labour Party are standing by, not saying anything, so they don't have to take any responsibility whatsoever. And then once the Tory government falls, Labour will step in and they will, they will bring about some kind of Labour-SNP coalition and they will take over. That's their plan. And I think it's absolutely disgraceful 
It is disgraceful. They should be bringing about political opposition, even if they're not ideologically committed to it, I would argue at this stage. It's so important to have an alternative voice. And what Keir Starmer, who as far as I can tell, doesn't stand for anything at all, and his party uh, did, was to abstain from taking responsibility. And this lack of political conviction, this lack of moral conviction, characterizes the entire political class currently. And it's, the whole thing is a shambles, and I'm ashamed of it. I'm ashamed of it as a British person. I, I agree with you, Jamie. I, I don't really agree with lockdowns. As I say, I, I'm not sure that there's any measurable, um, meaningful success sort of criteria, which is why I'm a bit hedging a bit here. Um, because obviously, uh, as Wales show, if you lock down, they might drop cases in the short term, but in the long cases, they start to just pick up where they were going again. So, the, so as, um, as Ferguson said back in March, uh, you know, the option really is only lockdown until there's a vaccine. But as we yeah, all know, or, or you know, not, or not doing it at all, Tom, or not or doing you... it at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. They're just, you know, um, the option is as, Sweden. As we all know, the option is Sweden. As we all know, that, Sorry, carry on. Yeah, yeah. As we all know, the the cost of a lockdown, not just in the economy, but in mental health, in um, kind of uh, in social health, in our deprivation of rights, is so high that that cannot be countenanced. Um, yep. you know, lockdown deaths are huge. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, and they will grow, Jamie, they will grow. Of course they will. Yeah, so, so uh, sorry, Tom, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. I just wanted to say that when I was, uh, I listened to one of these appalling 5 p.m. briefings, I think it was on Monday, it was Hancock taking it. Honestly, it was a, a complete vacuous waste of time, um, just pure, pure kind of politicized, you know, political staging. Uh, but one of the things that was interesting is that somebody asked uh, Matt Hancock about, uh, you know, what would be the um, implications if people didn't take vaccines. And as as part of his answer there, and I don't I don't know the full truth of this, but as part of his answer, he said that we don't know whether vaccines uh, stop transmission. And as far as I understand it, the, the you know, these 80 percent figures and so on, that refers to the suppression of symptoms. Right. So we don't know if vaccines stop transmission. It probably is the case that they don't actually if, if they haven't announced that they do. Uh, and Absolutely. then in the, in the, Sorry, Sorry, then, and then the other thing he said as a result of it, it was kind of a, it was kind of something he said in passing but after he said that thing about not knowing whether they'd stop transition he said you know we're gonna to have to look at that and then we'll decide what people can do so all i'm saying is you know people who are thinking that once you've had this vaccine you'll be able to go back to your ordinary life and your freedoms will be restored all i'm saying is watch this space because i don't believe that and we need to be very, very clear as a society um, that, that once the vulnerable are vaccinated, um, as we know that, you know, 95% of um, deaths come from people who are clinically vulnerable. Once they are identified and vaccinated, uh, then there can be no restrictions on the public. Um, there's no moral case for it because the, the vaccines have been shown, quite aside from all the moral issues around them, but they have been shown to reduce symptoms uh, in 95% of cases. So they say. So they say. So they say. I mean, let's, I'm not anti-vax, Jamie. I'm, I'm anti-coercion and I'm anti-compulsion. Um, I'm, uh, I'm also anti the use of aborted stem cells and the manufacturing of the vaccinations. Well, in that um, case, Tom, you know, the, the term, the term anti-vaxxer doesn't, it just has no epistemic um, value. 
because you know, well, you've, you've just described you've just described the position of somebody who would be called an anti-vaxxer. Well, no, because I would, I would quite happily take um, various other vaccines without without. All right. Well, trouble. yeah. Okay. If you if you define um, if you define the word anti-vaxxer as somebody who, who who won't take any vaccines at all in any circumstances, maybe. But it's frequently attributed to people nowadays who are skeptical about the. Uh, coronavirus vaccine which is why i'm saying that it's just all it is is a pejorative um a pejorative way of trying to other people but i mean yeah okay I, i'm with you jamie um right. but i think the the fact is that that uh, on a sort of purely um sort of risky le risk level um it might well make sense to vaccinate the very vulnerable because they're more likely to have a adverse effect from coronavirus than from uh from the vaccine at the very least there's there's a you know a, you know and once they are done and to be honest, they should not be. They should not be done coerced. They should not be compulsed. Once that is done, there is no reason why the world shouldn't go back to two normal. Not uh, a new normal, but to normal where we were before, shaking yeah. hands, hugging, the, the seeing as many as well. Because yeah. if it, if it reduces ninety five percent of people's symptoms down, um, if it reduces the death rate by ninety five percent, and ninety ninety five percent of the deaths are already in that category in the vulnerable. Uh, then we are in a situation where we would there would be virtually no excess death from COVID. You know, yeah. only ten percent of the deaths yeah. that we get. Yeah, I mean, Tom, you need to go, so I'll let you have the last word on that. I don't. I mean, I'm not. I'm not entirely on the same page with you with everything you said, but with with let's say ninety five percent of it, I agree with you. But anyway, the uh, the point I'm making is that Matt Hancock, what he said the other day, if you listen closely. I think the implication was very clear, which is that if the vaccine stops transmission, they might think about giving us some of our freedoms back. But if it doesn't, or if there's any kind of doubt about it, they will use that as an opportunity to keep this situation going. All I'm saying, Tom, is I've come to the place where I don't trust the politicians. I think they are, yeah. I think they're cynical. I think they're misleading us. And I am not expecting this vaccine to solve the problem in the way that they are implying that it might. That's what I'm saying. No, I, I do agree with you, Jamie. There's, they're not they're not a silver bullet, but also, uh, you know, if they give people and the government the confidence to go back to normal life, they're not uh, provided they're not coerced, provided they're not produced with um, using uh, using unethical methods, then they are fun they are they are probably a, a good thing. Yeah, well, and providing that they're safe as well, Tom. My question Obviously. would be: I don't, I don't think I'm cynical about whether they're safe, whether they're produced ethically, and whether they're even necessary. But we can't, we can't, we can't go into this now because you need to go and have your lunch. And I, my my wife has just texted me to ask me to bring some sellotape into the house. So look, it's been a great conversation, Tom. I think this has been. I hope people have enjoyed it. I've 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 certainly enjoyed it. Um, but then maybe maybe I enjoy my the sound of my own voice too much. I don't know. Yep. All right. All well, right. God bless you, Jamie. God bless all our listeners. And uh, yeah, see you in another week. All right. God bless. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Irreverent. Please join us again next time. <laughs>